I'm going to ask you tonight and invite you, if you would, if you have your Bible, to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Our time together this evening will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word, the Bible. If you are not very familiar with Mark's gospel, it might be helpful for you to know this evening as we begin that Mark has structured his gospel around three questions. The first question, who is Jesus? From Mark chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Mark chapter 8, verse 30, Mark is answering this question, who is Jesus? Who is this man who has come into the world? Then the second question, what does Jesus expect of those who follow him? From Mark chapter 8, verse 31, all the way to Mark chapter 10, verse 52, Mark is telling us what Jesus expects of those who call themselves his disciples. Then finally, why did Jesus have to die? Mark chapter 11, verse 1, all the way to chapter 16, verse 8. Our text is found in this final section on the last week of Jesus' life. It is Thursday. He will die tomorrow. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us this evening. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said to them, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drank it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful for this opportunity to gather around your word. And we ask now, Father, that you would help us. As we give our attention to your word, we know that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we hear, that he would seek to distract us. Father, we pray that now you would help us to focus. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And we pray, Father, that as we gather around it now, that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of Scripture as it has been decisively revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for any who are here tonight who think themselves believers and are not, or who are not believers but have come here this evening, that you would be merciful in this time to remove the heart of stone 
and insert the heart of flesh and cause them to be born again. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Dave and Andy have been friends for over 20 years. Two friends originally who were brought together by a passion for music and by a love for games who for more than six years have walked 30 minutes once a week to simply give each other a high five. A tradition that they started merely as a fun way to see each other regularly. After moving within two miles of each other, Andy suggested that they walk toward one another once a week and high five in the middle of what just so happened to be a local park. So at 8.05 a.m. on April 30th, 2014, they texted and said, all right, let's leave our houses. They met in the middle point, they gave each other a high five, and then they really weren't sure what to do, so they sat there and they talked for about three hours. The only rule in the beginning was that they had to do it once a week. But over the years, the walk and the high five progressed a little bit. Now one person sends the other person a high five emoji. The other person responds with the hand emoji. Then they both respond with the walking emoji. That's the only communication. Over time, friends became interested in the high five walk, and they would ask them, can I go with you to high five one another? On one occasion, they each had about 15 to 20 guys lined up behind them, each high fiving in this middle area of the park. They say that it's not even rare for their wives and their kids to accompany them on the high five tradition. But over time, even the high five has changed. And at first, it was a pretty standard high five. But as you can imagine at this point, they, quote, started adding other moves to it. Eventually, it became a clap, a snap, and then a high five. And if they're too busy at work that day or that week with the demands of life, they simply give each other what they call the silent high five. But it also has a few rules. They first have to pass each other without even looking at each other as if they're complete strangers. They're not even allowed to smile. They walk 20 paces past each other, and then they turn around, walk back, high-five, and go home without a single word. They don't even acknowledge each other's existence until they stick up their hand and high-five. The high-five has been so intimately woven into the fabric of their lives that Gabe said, quote, for the last six and a half years, it has been one of the most consistent things in my life. Until last year, when Gabe was diagnosed with a rare, more long-term version of encephalitis and lost significant portions of his memory. For the last three and a half years, fellowship with the Twelve has been one of the most consistent things in Jesus' life until this night. This Thursday night, the Lord's Supper, when Jesus was betrayed by his enemy and abandoned by his friends on what has become known to us as Monday, Thursday, in many Christian traditions because of the Latin for new commandment. And in preparation for that meal, notice first Jesus' prediction. Look with me again in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, I'm going to keep rereading the passage, so just keep it open the whole time. They sacrificed the Passover lamb, and his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. 
When Jesus woke up on Thursday morning, he will likely not close his eyes again and sleep until he closes them in death on Friday afternoon. Yet Mark is very clear to tell us and to teach us throughout his gospel that Jesus never wavered, not even for a second. Jesus never hesitated in the final hours of his life. In fact, he remained fully prepared to take deliberate actions that moved him directly toward the cross when his disciples asked him, verse 12, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? As thousands of pilgrims have crowded into Jerusalem for a feast from all over the world, the disciples' minds turn to these obvious practical questions. What are we going to do? Where are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? The urgency in their questions is there for us because we see the significance of the Passover meal. And there is a concern for us as readers because we know something that they do not at this point. We know that Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus in chapter 14, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Friend, have you ever just stopped to think how much money would be sufficient to turn your back on Jesus? But Jesus is not concerned, and he is already prepared, verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. The careful preparations for the meal stress its importance to Jesus. Notice, follow him wherever he enters. Say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room. It's furnished. It's ready. There, prepare for us. Jesus desired to have this meal with his disciples. It is a fact that Mark actually emphasizes by mentioning the word Passover four times in our text as he highlights that the final meal that Jesus would have with his disciples is the Passover meal on the very same day the Jews, verse 12 sacrificed the Passover lamb. The careful preparations not only stress Jesus' desire, but his instructions demonstrate his omniscience when he tells his disciples that they are to go into the city. And when they go into the city, that they're going to see a man, they're going to encounter this man carrying a water jar, and then they are to follow that man to the house where they will eat the Passover meal. It is very important for us to pay attention to what Jesus is saying and deliberately doing here because finding a man carrying a jar of water in Jerusalem during Passover would have been incredibly unusual. Not only because it was considered servant's work, but because the city would have had tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people preparing for the feast, crowding into the city to be inside the city walls to find anyone would have been difficult. It is exactly like when you go and you travel overseas. You travel to Asia, you travel to Europe, you go somewhere down south, you come home and your friend speaks to you about the one European person that they know and they ask you if you saw them when you went to England. It would have been just like that, that you traveled over there and sure, you ran across Bob, who they happened to know that they met in the fourth grade. What we see here is Jesus knowing immediately what the disciples have before them. The fact that they encounter the man who leads them to the house at all where they eat the Passover meal exhibits not only God's providence... But Jesus' omniscience, Jesus knows exactly what is going to take place. Nothing happened to Jesus by accident in the final hours of his life. Jesus is not some innocent victim who was carried away against his will. Jesus is moving consciously, deliberately toward the cross, knowing full well what is before him. Betrayal, 
denial, death, crucifixion, substitution for the people. And he takes these steps to the cross, and the fact that there is a room ready for them shows the importance of this moment for Jesus. Not only is he omniscient and aware of everything that they will encounter, but Jesus is prepared because he wants them to see the significance of this final meal as he secures this room for them well in advance because of the enormous crowds that would have made it nearly impossible to find any room at all. And yet Mark tells us, verse 16, the disciples set out and they went into the city and they found it just as Jesus had told them. Jesus went into the final hours of his life fully prepared and he died more willingly than you and I receive eternal life. Notice second, Judas' betrayal. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Then they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, One of the twelve, one who is dipping bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus and his disciples would have spent several hours in what we call the upper room, verse 15. The events would have included things like the washing of the disciples' feet, the eating of the Passover meal, a prediction of Peter's denials and Judas' betrayal, and a lengthy teaching session that we find in John's Gospel, where we find this high priestly prayer. Sometime around 6 p.m., Jesus and his disciples would have reclined around a U-shaped table, and what Jesus says next stuns his disciples in verse 18 as he's speaking to them here in this particular moment. He says to them in verse, sorry, verse 18, and they were reclining at table and Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, setting an ominous tone for the evening. And yet, once again, Jesus demonstrates not only his awareness, but his total control over absolutely everything that is taking place. While he is moving ever more consciously to his destiny, forsaken and alone, he remains in sovereign control over absolutely everything. Well, as you can imagine, the atmosphere for the, in the room would have been extremely palpable and intense at this moment. Jesus has revealed to his closest friends and his disciples that one of those who've been with Jesus, following Jesus, sitting with Jesus, eating with Jesus, who've been taught by Jesus, traveling with Jesus, sleeping near Jesus, making and doing ministry with Jesus, would now be a traitor. Judas must have been absolutely stunned to learn that what he thought was a secretive plan has been uncovered and was known to the Lord. Friends, just as a question to you. Do you really think that you're getting away with it? That no one sees and that no one hears and that no one is paying careful attention to all of the details of your life. As we read through the Gospels and we see Judas' life, what he surely thought was a secretive plan is uncovered by the Lord who would be betrayed by him, reminding us that all of the sin that we think that we're getting away with, we are not getting away with it. And all of the things that we thought have gone unnoticed because we have not experienced the consequences immediately have not gone unnoticed. And all of the things that we have tried to cover up and push into the dark corners of our lives because we don't want anyone to know about are known very clearly, clearly and carefully by the Lord. 
You can imagine Judas being absolutely stunned. The shocking revelation brings a fury of responses. All of a sudden, all of the disciples simply cannot believe it. So verse 19, they begin to ask, just like you and I would have been asking, is it I? Is it me? Which one is it? Who's it going to be? Who's the traitor? Which one of us is going to turn you over? And Jesus' reply to their question makes four things perfectly clear. Verse 20, and he said to them, it's one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as, is as written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. First, the traitor is one of the twelve. Second, he is one who dips his hand in the dish with Jesus, a sign of friendship. Third, it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Fourth, this betrayal, even this, is ordained by God. Do you know what it's like to be betrayed by one of your friends? And sometimes perhaps you think when you're praying to the Lord, no one understands what it's like to be me, to be betrayed by the people that I love most and that I have entrusted myself to, people that I've shared a meal with, people that I have not only made myself vulnerable around, but actually know things about me that no one else knows, and then they weaponize your life or your information against you, and the deep pain there. Friends, Jesus knows exactly what it is like to be betrayed by the very people who are supposed to love him and protect him, who are to befriend him, whom he had entrusted himself to, who kept his secrets and helped him in this life. Jesus knows exactly what it is like to be turned against by the very people that he has sought to serve in this life. We think at this point that it would have made it absolutely clear for all of the other 11 disciples that Judas is the one who is the enemy. In fact, sometimes when we think of Judas, we often think of him a lot like Scar in The Lion King. He's the one with the darker hair and the obviously shabby clothing. He's the one that doesn't quite look like the other disciples. When he did miracles, it really never worked. And so it was obvious to everybody that Judas was the one who was the traitor. But Jesus' comment about the betrayer and the one who sticks his hand in the bowl did not make it as clear on the surface for us or for these disciples as we might think. At that point in the evening, absolutely everybody would have had their hands in that meal. At that point in the evening, absolutely everybody would have been wondering, am I the one who would betray Jesus? This is why they are so confused and it underscores the terrible nature of Judas' treachery. Verse 20 he is the one who is dipping bread in the dish with me. Jesus' identification of the traitor alludes to Psalm 41, verse 9. My friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In that lament psalm, David is lamenting that this close friend, this person that he has shared life with and entrusted himself to, this one who he would have thought as somebody as a companion has turned against him. And those sorrows in David's life point us forward to the sorrows that we now see in the Son of God's life. It's not only that he experienced physical pain. He did, and it hurt, and it did. But he experienced all of the betrayal that you and I deserve for the sinfulness of our lives. Yet he had never done anything wrong to any of the people around him. Judas' betrayal is part of God's sovereign plan written from long ago and the fact that that betrayal is both the fulfillment of God's plan, having been prophesied in the Psalms, but is also the willful choice of the traitor are stated very clearly in the text. Did you notice it? Verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. 
but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. God's sovereignty and Judas' human responsibility coexist side by side in the biblical narrative. Nothing is happening apart from God's plan. Judas is completely culpable for everything that he did. Judas is not able to say, because God is sovereign, I'm not culpable for what I did. Any more than you or I are able to say, someone else made me do it. God made me do it. God rules over everything. Nothing is happening by accident in Jesus' life. Just like nothing happens by accident in your life. And you are absolutely responsible for everything that takes place in your life. Every sin, every word, every thought, every action. Friends, that Jesus must die according to the scripture at this moment would certainly and should certainly be bringing to mind all of the famous passages that we know of. Isaiah 52 and 53, where we learn that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brings you and I peace. The reason that we can sing with confidence is because the Son of God has died. But the emphasis in Mark chapter 14, verses 17 through 20, is also on the certainty of Judas' judgment. Verse 21. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Better to never live than to die apart from Jesus. Better to never live than to live the most full, the most blessed, the most wonderful, the most envious, the most comfortable, the most rich, the most restful, the most powerful life the world has ever known and die apart from Jesus. It is better to never live and never breathe and never have life than to die without Jesus. Parents, I wonder what you were teaching your children was truly wonderful this past vacation season. Was it presents or accomplishments or vacation destination or prestige or comfort? Students in the room, I wonder what it is that you are teaching one another is truly valuable. Looks. Sex, material possessions, followers on social media, influence, members of this church. What is it that you are actually teaching one another is truly valuable as members of this church? Influence, power, control, friends. It is better to never live than to have everything that this world would say is the best to have and to die apart from Jesus. And you know that as well as anybody in our country. You live in an area where everything is at your fingertips. You can have everything you want and as much of it as you want all of the time. It is better to never live than to have everything that would make you the envy of everyone in Long Island. And the envy of everyone in all of New York City than to die apart from Jesus. We see here that he is highlighting for us something that we often say and can sing, but rarely believe. Friend, I wonder tonight, can you say that? But do you really believe that? And if we took an audit of your life, if you asked those who know you best and those you trust most, what does it look like I really love? Am I living for the Savior? And you gave them free reign to answer without fear of any consequence, 
What would they say when they looked at your life? That it is better to never live than to die apart from Jesus. Jesus' prediction, Judas' betrayal. Notice third, Jesus' pledge. Look in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drank it new in the kingdom of God. The Passover meal consisted of several basic elements. Each one had a symbolic importance, and it contributed as a whole to the retelling of the Exodus story. The Passover lamb was reminding them of the blood of the lamb that was smeared above the doorpost as they escaped the visitation of the angel of death. The unleavened bread reminded them of the swiftness of their redemption in light of the fact that they had no time to bake bread before their flight from Egypt. A bowl of puree reminded them of the clay that they would have used to make bricks during their captivity. The bowl of salt water would have not only reminded them of their tears during their captivity, but it would have reminded them of the water of the Red Sea and how God greatly and powerfully delivered them from their enemies. The bitter herbs recalled all of the bitterness of the bondage, all of the pain of their slavery that they had experienced for several hundred years. There were four cups of wine that were drunk during the Passover meal. Each one commemorated one of the four promises that God had made to his people recorded in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the house of slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The first Passover represented God's greatest act of deliverance in the Hebrew Scriptures. It represented the creation of a new nation, the people of Israel. God defeated Pharaoh with all of his mighty power and all of his wonderful armies. He delivered his people from slavery, from bondage, through the sacrificial blood of the Lamb. So the Israelites now were to remember that story. They were to do that by killing a lamb and rubbing its blood on the doorframe. Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The point is so significant in the book of Exodus that it's actually made twice in the exact same passage. Verse 23 of chapter 12 of Exodus. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two, two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. The importance of the Exodus event simply cannot be overstated in the Old Testament scriptures or the New Testament scriptures. It is the retelling constantly of what God has done for his people, what he has done for us and for our salvation. It signaled the release of the Israelites from slavery, the dawning of a new covenant with their God. And at the same time, it is pointing forward, foreshadowing Jesus coming death as a Passover lamb. Later, when Israel is oppressed and they're defeated by their enemies and they're in bondage, what are they doing? They are constantly predicting the day when God would return to Zion and he would accomplish a new and a greater exodus and once again redeem his people and restore them to covenant favor. 
And it is only when we think of the Exodus story and all of its massive implications that we see all of these parallels between the Passover and the Last Supper. In the Passover, God remembered His covenant with Abraham, but at the Lord's Last Supper, a new covenant is established between God and His people. At the Passover, Israel remembered their bondage and slavery in Egypt and how God had delivered them. But now at the Lord's Supper, believers are reminded of their former slavery to sin and to Satan, but through Christ's death, how they receive forgiveness and freedom from bondage to sin. In the Passover, the blood of the Passover lamb was smeared on the doorpost so that each family would be, see a sign of their obedience to God. A lamb had to die to secure their freedom inside the house. And now here inside the Lord's Last Supper, the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, has been shed for us. Jesus' words, they actually recall that story and then they transform all of the symbolism for us, announcing the arrival of a new exodus. Here's what he says in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is why the Passover meal has a prescribed order or what we might say a liturgy to it. First came a blessing for the festival and the first cup of wine followed by the drinking of the first cup of wine. Next, all of the food would have been brought out and the youngest son would then ask, why this night is different than all of the other nights. And the father would begin to question everyone by retelling the Exodus story. And he's pointing to all of the items on the table as he's telling them the story. Reminding them of what God has done in the past so that they would remember it in the present. So that they might continue to move forward faithfully into the future. And then they would sing some of the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 to 114. Then they would drink the second cup of wine. And then they would bless the bread and they would break it and they would distribute it amongst themselves. Then the bread would be eaten with the bitter herbs and all of the bowl of the puree. And then the meal would be eaten. And then the Passover meal would have included the roasted lamb that would have been sacrificed in the temple. And at the conclusion of all of that, the father would bless the third cup of wine. And then they would sing again, Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. And then there would be a fourth cup of wine and then they would finish the meal. Jesus' statement, verse 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, directs his disciples' attention both backwards to the Exodus story and forward to the second coming when he would come back for this fantastic banquet feast. The unleavened bread would represent his body. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The wine represents the blood of the new covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus' words have been the source of all kind of debate. And all of the controversy centers around the interpretation of this statement. This is my body. This is my blood. Just very quickly. Roman Catholics understand this as transubstantiation. Those who hold this view understand that when the priest speaks of the appointed words over the bread and the wine, they're transformed into Jesus' body and blood. They maintain this position, although the bread and the wine physically remain bread and wine, and they're wrong. The second understanding is what Lutherans call consubstantiation. It teaches that the bread and the wine remain bread and wine, but the spiritual presence of Christ and body and blood are present in, around, and through all of the elements. 
and they're wrong. And the Protestant interpretation understands Jesus' words in more of a symbolic fashion, emphasizing the thought of remembrance instead of focusing on the verb is. This position understands what is taking place as essentially memorial, in which believers remember the cross work of Christ, and they look forward to his returns. And through all of this, Jesus is teaching. Mark 14, thank you, brother. His words echo Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. And Jesus took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Reminding them of the promise of the prophets, Jeremiah 31. If you have your Bible, turn there with me now. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, very familiar verses to us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. While the Sinai covenant was established with the blood of sacrificial animals, the new covenant is established through the blood of Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son. Jesus viewed his death as a sacrifice of atonement, establishing a new covenant with people leading them in a new exodus out of bondage from sin and death. And friends, this is why we celebrate it. And this is why we remember and proclaim and we re-narrate the story of our lives as we gather not only as the people of God, but as we gather around those elements reminding ourselves of what God has done for us and for our salvations. And it is precisely why Mark does something that so many biblical authors do. He tells us what we are prone to stop doing. Remember. If you read your English Bible and you read the English Standard Version, one of the things that you'll notice, you can just get on any Bible software and see that the word remember is mentioned 169 times in the Bible. It's mentioned over and over and over again to remind us not only of things that we will forget, but to remind us of what God has done for us. We are to remember so that we do not forget the great work of redemption, the great work that he has done for us and for our salvation as we gather and remind ourselves of the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ and the torn flesh of Christ for you and for me so that we might have everlasting joy. Friends, when we remember to proclaim, we should be asking ourselves, what is it that we need to remember? The basic storyline of the Bible. That you and I are sinners by birth and by choice. And that sin has separated us so far from God. And that the only way to be made right with God is to approach God through fellowship with His Son by faith. And when we approach God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified before Him. We are made right. And His wrath is appeased. And now you and I can have hope of heaven if we would just trust in Jesus. It is a message that we are to remember and proclaim so that we never forget the great story of redemption. 
One of the great errors of the Christian life is that we hear this story and we are transformed by this story, but we too quickly move away from this story. And the Bible is constantly saying, remember, 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 do not forget, remember what God has done. Friends, have you forgotten to remember? On those days at work, when life is hard, and it seems that everyone's against you, and God has forgotten you. In those moments, remember that no matter what you experience in this life, what God has done for you and for your salvation is greater than any of the pain that you experience at the hands of a difficult employer. Husbands and wives, perhaps one of you is married to an unbeliever in this room, or you have children in this room who have rebelled against you, or family members in this room who have turned away from the Lord or refused to listen to you because you're a believer. In those moments, when the people that you love most and the kids that you poured all of your life into and the family members that you shared life with growing up turn their back on you, you are to remember what God has done. And in those moments when you feel forgotten and forsaken, you are to remember that you are not alone and that God loves you and that out of all of the pain, He has called you out of it to everlasting joy and everlasting life. When your neighbors reject you and they think that you are absurd for your belief in Jesus Christ and that you believe that marriage is between one man and one woman and not two men or two women and they think that you are crazy for it, in those moments you are to remember and proclaim and to remind yourselves that the great work of redemption has singled you out and has set you on a collision course for glory with Jesus Christ. Friends, remember and proclaim and encourage one another with these words. What do you do when a fellow member comes to you and says, I don't know how to put my life back together? You remember the gospel story and you proclaim the gospel story and you remind them that there is no sin that they can commit that will send them out of the reach of God's great love in Christ and that that if they would repent, God would forgive them and he will show them mercy. Here we are to remember and proclaim over and over again. And at the very end of his life, Jesus is telling his disciples, remember. Because they're about to walk away. And they're going to abandon Jesus. Judas betrayed him. They're going to abandon him. All of his followers will scatter. And you can imagine the shame that they would experience. And in those moments... Remembering, this is my blood poured out for you. Jesus knew that they were going to sin. This is my body that was broken for you. Jesus knew that they would walk away. And yet he went to the cross and he died more willingly than you or I receive eternal life. Friends, Jesus knew all of the sin that you would commit before your belief in Christ. And he knows all of the sin that you will commit even as a believer as you seek to put off the old life and put on the new life as you look forward to the day of God that is coming. And yet he died for you anyways because he loved you. Because of the great love with which he had for you. He went to the cross and he endured all of the shame and the mockery and the sorrow and the abandonment and the pain to die as a substitute in your place 
for the sin that you committed before your belief in Christ, the sin you committed during your faith in Christ, as you look forward to the new creation that is coming when Christ returns. Jesus died for you to forgive you of all of that sin. It is the great gospel that we are to remember and proclaim to one another. The first week of Gabe's uh, time in the hospital with encephalitis, there was a special high-five moment. He was allowed one visitor a day, and Andy stayed overnight so Gabe's wife could go home and be with their daughter. And on that night, Andy asked him, do you know who I am? And Gabe replied, yeah, you're Andy. Did I forget that earlier? I'm really sorry. Then Andy asked, do you know anything about the high five? To which Gabe replied, no, I don't know what you're talking about. The next morning, Gabe got up to go to the restroom, and Andy said, Gabe, I know this is not going to make a lot of sense, but when you're on your way back from the restroom, I'm going to walk toward you, and I'm going to hold my hand up, and you're going to give me a high five. And as Andy started to walk toward Gabe, right before the high five, Gabe did the clap, the snap, and the high five, and they both just broke down and started crying. Later in an interview discussing that night in the hospital, Gabe said, that's one of the things that I love about the routine of it. Not just the mechanics of it, but the friendship part of it is so burned into my muscle memory that that's just naturally what came out. And now, after having spent all of these weeks in the hospital, I've been just trying to find my life again. And this guy and this tradition that we started years ago are such a huge part of it. When asked what it was like to carry on a tradition with a friend who couldn't remember it, Andy said, there have been seasons for me when I needed more emotional support than Gabe. And he was there to walk with me during all of it. During this time, I've been carrying more of the memory. But that's the normal ebb and flow of any true friendship and relationship. This feels like a time where I can repay Gabe for all that he's done for me in the past. When asked what it was like to learn anew about something that was already so special to him, Gabe replied, In the midst of something that I've never felt before, where my brain is swirling and all of life is out of control, there's this routine that brought a little less chaos into a time that was already pretty chaotic for me. And now, even after six years of doing this simple thing, every time I see my wonderful buddy walking down the side of the road toward me, that's special. We're dedicated to one another, and we're showing one another, not simply in a way where we're just saying, hey, I love you. We're actually doing something for one another and with one another, and that has not gotten old, and it never will. Because beautiful things like the high five will never get old. They're gifts to the world. And friends, in a world that is filled with so many ugly things, beautiful things like gathering with the people of God for the ordinary means of grace, singing God's word and reading God's scripture and sitting under God's preached word and gathering around God's table as we baptize people into the membership of God's church never get old. They're beautiful things that re-narrate the story of our lives around the gospel. And they remind us in a world that is telling us so many competing stories of the ultimate story that we are to build everything around. That Jesus came, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, that he ascended on high, and he is coming again, and we are his children, and he will take us home. They remind us of the great hope that we have, that no matter how unhinged the world comes to be, in the United States or in Ukraine or in Haiti or in anywhere else, 
that Jesus Christ reigns supreme, that what he has done for his people will never get old, and that we are to celebrate for what he has done for us and for our salvation. Friends, we are to remember and proclaim and to celebrate because we have a greater hope than anyone else on planet earth. It is better to never live than to die apart from this Jesus. But with this Jesus, friends, we have confidence and we can approach the dark clouds with great hope knowing that the Son of God has lit a way for us in the darkness, and he is the trailblazer going right ahead of us, leading us safely home to glory. Friends, do you believe that? Friends, sing that this evening and remind one another of the great gospel story, the gospel story that has saved us, the gospel story that keeps us saved, and the gospel story that we keep telling one another so that we remember and proclaim that Jesus Christ is coming again for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We are so grateful for the gospel story. And we are thankful for these reminders in our Lord's life that he knows exactly what it is like to be us, to be abandoned and to be betrayed. And that on either side of this beautiful meal, he is abandoned and betrayed by Judas. He is abandoned and betrayed by Peter and the other disciples. There are ugly things surrounding this beautiful meal that proclaim to us the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. Jesus knows exactly what it is like to be us, to experience all of the pain of this life. And yet, he experienced it willingly for us and for our salvation. Help us to rejoice with greater confidence and to sing with greater boldness and to pray with greater earnestness and to listen with a deeper sense of resolve because of the responsibility that we now have as your people to serve and minister to one another and those who are dying and lost around us that they might know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.